Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. Our guest today is Jeff Lowenfels. In honor of our 50th episode, I wanted to get Jeff, our very first podcast guest and old friend, back on the show. Jeff is the author of the popular Teeming series, Teeming with Microbes, Teeming with Nutrients, and Teeming with Fungi. Jeff is an extremely respected and popular national garden writer. He is the former president of the Garden Writers of America. Jeff has been a good friend now for over a decade and is a wonderful advocate for organic gardening, compost teas, and the microbes in our soil. Thanks, Jeff. Great to have you back on the show. Uh, you know, you're an old friend and it's, it's wonderful to chat with you again. It's always fun. I never see you enough. So this is, this is a, a poor second substitute, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, let's, let's just, let's just start right away. Uh, you, you know, we talked about a few different topics off air, but one of the things you wanted to talk about was rhizophagy, which, uh, is, is something pretty interesting that I'm not that informed on. So why, why don't we just start right there? Yeah, we should. Uh, it's a fascinating subject. Rhizophagy, uh, R-H-I-Z-O-P-H-A-G-E-Y, I think it is, or maybe just G-Y. Uh, it's something that I stumbled upon, oh gosh, about probably about 10 years ago. A friend of mine in New York sent me an article about uh, tundra plants that are capable of actually ingesting organic molecules. Now, just, just as by way of background, in teeming with nutrients, one of, the, one of the takeaways is that the microbes in the soil put a charge on the uh, 17 nutrients that you need to grow plants. And it's that, that charge which enables the nutrients to get into plant cells. So it needs that charge. And, and so I wrote the book, Teeming with Microbes, which is about how much stuff gets delivered, and then, and then Teeming with Nutrients, how it gets into the plant, based upon the, the, the soil food web concept that the, that the uh, exudates that the plant drips out of the root system attracts bacteria and fungi, the bacteria and fungi attract the protozoa and nematodes who eat the bacteria and fungi and poop out the excess and feed the plant because it's all happening right there in the root zone. So that's sort of the model that I've, I've used and then about seven or eight years ago, uh, the, this rhizophagy concept came up, and it was sort of an eye-opener because plants aren't supposed to be able to take in organic molecules that don't have a charge on them. And so there, there were some pictures of some tundra plants, and they were actually doing that. Now, you know, you could think, okay, they're living in the tundra. They've had to adapt for a special way to live. They have a very short uh, growing season, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what it turns out is that there appear to be a set of bacteria, and I don't know uh, what the identification of this particular set is, but these bacteria operate in a different way than that standard soil food web uh, model. These guys go into the meristem of a root. So those brand new cells, you know, sort of the, the stem cell area of the root, they go into the tip. And when they go in, they, they, take, they drop off or lose their cell wall. And they move into the root where they are uh, uh, up against uh, the, the, the cell wall and the plasma lemma. All of this stuff, if you don't know these words, they're in teeming with nutrients. 
and they are oxidized, and the nutrients that they contain that the plant wants are stripped out of these shellless bacteria, who then continue to move through the root to the edge of the root, where they stimulate the production and growth of a root hair. Now, a root hair is just one cell. It's a single cell. It moves into that single cell, out to the tip of the root hair, and pops out into the soil, putting back on its cell wall or building a new cell wall, and then repeating the process. So these guys cycle through the soil, losing their cell wall inside the plant, giving the plant its nutrients, moving back outside, Whoa, now that is an unusual uh, new way of plants getting food. Holy crow, uh, it's pretty interesting. And if we can figure out which bacteria do it, when they do it, why they do it, we're, we're going to have a new tool, it seems to me, to be able to grow our favorite plant. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it is. And they've got pictures of it. If you go on the web, there are pictures of it where they can actually show the, the, the oxygen creates a situation where they can mark it. And so they can actually show where these guys are in the root. And it's not just one little guy in the root. I mean, it, there's quite a few of them in there. Wow. Now, you know, we've got to back up a second because I think a lot of people don't understand that there are two ways to move through a plant. So let's say you're going into a root. You can go into the root. Once you get into the cell, you're inside the cell, you can move from that cell to another cell to any other cell on the plant by going through the cells, okay? So you're, that's called a symplastic uh, uh, pathway. But you can also go into a plant in the, the cell walls and move from one cell wall all the way through the plant just by staying in the cell walls, and that's called the apoplastic pathway. And in that situation, uh, there are there are things that live in the cell walls that are that you want. I mean, there are bacteria and fungi, and these are capable of 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 through this rhizophagy. I'm sure going back out in the soil, and and they do also they drop off their antibiotics. You know, they they take out bad guys. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, now we've got a situation where not only do we have these guys, uh, you know, going into the symplastic pathway and moving back out into the soil, which is something that I always thought they could do by going through the cell walls. But, uh, you know, you got a sort of a second way the plants are feeding themselves. What, what is there a different, uh, there's not enough information for me to be able to tell exactly what's going on here. And I'm so excited about it, as you can tell, because uh, this information is going to be coming available, no question. So, so everybody needs to keep an eye on that, I think. That is that is interesting. So we don't quite know what the um, commercial or, or human application might be for this this amazing process, but uh, it's something new, kind of like what mycorrhizal fungus was. Oh gosh, now probably what fifteen twenty years ago. <laughs> well, yeah, and yeah, absolutely, and that and that's a very good comparison because in a way these guys are operating like a mycorrhizal fungus. They're going into the plant root. You know, I mean, it's kind of an interesting situation and. And, and uh, it's going to be fascinating to figure out how they and to watch how they study it and figure it all out. It's quite something. So we're going beyond, obviously, the tundra plant now. We're into, into regular plants. I, does cannabis do it? I don't know. I assume it does. Uh, 
you know, it's one of these things where an article sort of plopped out in there, you know, and it just doesn't have enough specifics. So, so maybe I got to, I just read it about a couple of weeks ago. So I got to, I got to, maybe I need to contact the author and, and see what's going on. So uh, stay tuned on that one. Uh, oh my gosh. And if it turns out to be, you know, a significant way plants obtain their nutrients, <laughs> I'm going to have to revise the books. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I have seen commercial applications now for uh, or commercial products around endophytic bacteria, where they've uh, yeah. studied studied this. Essentially, in this case, it was from the vents of uh, Yellowstone, a specific bacteria that they're now culturing and and using, and they found supposedly great success in mediating abiotic stress in plants by using this endophytic bacteria. And we've set up some trials over at a local. Uh, cannabis facility that I work with, um, but we haven't gotten any definitive results yet. But that was something I was interested in too. Yeah, I love that because when I when I wrote teaming with microbes, uh, you know, above ground, every plant has at least one, and really, really many more than that, up to about 300, 350 uh, different endo, endophytic uh, uh, organisms in the in the plant above ground. You know, they're sort of comparable to the like the mycorrhizal fungi below ground, but above ground you got all these endophytic fungi and endophytic bacteria. Uh, and I predicted back then that gee, you know, we're we're going to start seeing these things in commercial applications. And wow, it's just terrific. I mean, uh, so so what's the name of the product, if I may ask, or, or does it not have a name yet? You know, I don't remember off the top of my head. I'd have to go back into my email and, and dig it up because it's been a few months since we started. Uh, but they, they're working in agriculture. They're actually a local company to me. And uh, yeah, we're going to hopefully get some information off the trials and see if we can figure that out. Yeah. Ah, just fantastic. I mean, you know, and that's, that's what's so exciting about this, this particular hobby. I mean, you, you get to do things that you just normally wouldn't think about doing. I, I, I heard a guy speak in Baltimore uh, very interesting talk. Uh, and, and, and it's right up our alley, you and me, uh, 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 what he was talking about was making specialized teas, really specialized compost teas. And, and, and his theory, and I think he's proven it out. You can put a lot of stuff in your compost pile that end up in your compost teas that you wouldn't normally think about. And he was concentrating on a number of things. One of which was chitin. Uh, which I, I, I found very interesting. And so he, 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 he goes to the ocean or the beach and he collects soil that, that, that's, can, you know, that was made by kelp and seaweed and all those things decaying, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I suppose you could make your own by going to get kelp and seaweed. And, and, and then uh, what he's discovered is that, that the chitin that are in the bodies of the organisms uh, that eat that kind of soil or live in that kind of soil, uh, that chitin becomes an unbelievable tool in protecting plants. As you, as you know, uh, a lot of the mycorrhizal fungi, uh, chitin prevents some nematodes from getting into the roots. They just don't like chitin. And, and uh, so, so what this guy does is grow, he grows organisms that have chitin in their bodies, fungi, but there are also bacteria and other things that, you know, deal with chitin and break it down and do all sorts of stuff. And, and then he, and then he uses it in his, in, in, in specialized teas. And he's done the same thing by make, by taking some of the beneficial insects that you might use, uh, you know, I can never pronounce their name, skimpters, you know, the mite, uh, 
and he, and he grows them in massive quantities in his compost uh, so that their metabites, the, you know, the, the things that they produce are in that compost and then become useful in growing the plant. Um, you know, which is sort of just a, a little bit more of an extension of what we do by trying to make a designer fungal or a designer bacteria uh, 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 compost tea. Pretty exciting. Exciting, and and since I live near the coast, I'll be trying it. That's for sure. Yeah, you know that that's an interesting concept. I'd love to see more research on that. I I know the like for example the insect frass that we source has uh, really high levels of chitinase producing uh, bacteria, which produce a particular enzyme. I believe it's called chitinase, and that enzyme right. is, is what is effective in, in dealing with these insects in a lot of ways. So what you're describing there. And then we are seeing a lot of like these uh, Korean natural farmers and, and natural farming where they're taking local, their local soils and using that in teas as a way of increasing indigenous microbes. Um, so right. it's, it's definitely catching on. I'm curious to see how it all plays out. Uh, funny enough. Yeah, yeah I w- I'll send you the name of the, uh, he's, he's got a little lab and, uh, uh, you know, I think, I think he'd be worth your communicating with, particularly since... Uh, you know, you're you're you've got a lot of inputs on your farm, uh, and and you live close enough to the to the ocean, you can you can really fool around with a lot of this stuff. Plus, I happen to know that you make some pretty damn good compost, so uh, this would be fun, really fun. But it, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, we've we've known this for forever that if you can if you can give it to the plant, the plant will figure out how to use it, and and, and that's what happens. And that chitinase is is, is important stuff. It, enables the stuff to break down. Without it, you wouldn't break it down. So uh, very cool stuff, very cool stuff. Lots of new stuff going on, um, but lots of old stuff going on as well. And I think people people who listen to your podcast probably get a little bit of a chuckle or, 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 or maybe are just a little bit confused by some of the things that they read. So for example, uh, last week there was an article about a, I think she was in Saskatchewan, um, and uh, this, this was a research assistant, obviously, in the university. She obviously had an advisor. And the article, uh, you know, it was one of these articles that I just I couldn't believe it. The article said, oh, my goodness gracious, we've just discovered that plants create their own microbial communities around their root system. I, you know, and I read it and I went, what? Where's this, where's this lady been? Where has this lady been? <laughs> you know, more important, where has her advisor been all these years? Uh, I mean, this is not a new discovery, uh, but it's written up like it is, you know. And so, so people read it. Oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting how much, how, how further, further along the, the spectrum we are uh, as growers, uh, you know, and as hobby growers, uh, compared to so many other people who who deal with plants, it's it's just simply amazing, and I, I think cannabis growers have to give themselves a pat on the back, frankly. Uh, best best gardeners I've ever met, frankly. Yeah, I like the idea that uh, you know you're pushing the envelope with uh, cannabis growers and giant pumpkin growers, people that are really trying out new things. Um, and, but I also love that science does catch up and then tell us where we were way off base. You know, there's a lot of stuff that right. the cannabis industry has tried. And honestly, a lot of things that giant pumpkin growers have done that is just not panned out over time that we thought was good science when we first started doing it. So, uh, yeah, it is a balance. But I totally agree with you. Cannabis growers are great. Uh, and, and I was just talking with someone how 
uh, a lot of, for a lot of cannabis growers, uh, it's becoming the new gateway drug to vegetable gardening and where their food comes from. So that's been a wonderful right, right. <laughs> adjunct right. to all this. Sure. Well, and as, as you know, we don't want to ruin it for the next show, but we'll, we'll do a future show on my, on my upcoming book, which is on auto-flowering cannabis. And I, I take the perspective, uh, and this is not a book that I've written for you or for the listeners of this particular podcast. This is a book I wrote for, you know, my wife, uh, a sister, you know, uh, somebody that's not a professional grower that's just a gardener. Because I believe that auto-flowering cannabis have reached a point now where they are the, going to be the next tomato plant. And, and just to, without getting too far into it, just to cap it off, you know, I think they've reached the point now where they are so easy to grow uh, and so effective in terms of what they're able to deliver in terms of CBD or THC. Uh, you know, uh, that I think they are the next hobby plant. In our lifetime, uh, a new plant comes along once or twice. Uh, uh, in the vegetable world, snap peas is the one that I remember more than anything else. There weren't any, and now all of a sudden there's, you know, seven, eight, 10, 15 different kinds of snap peas. Everybody grows them. They're terrific, you know. That's what auto-flowering cannabis, I think, is going to do to the gardening world. The stigma's dropping uh, once it drops, hey, this is the next tomato, the holy grail. So I'll, I'll leave it there. We'll do another show, I hope. But uh, uh, you're right. I, I think you know we are a, a gateway into growing food and growing food organically. Well, I know I said I wanted to wait on that because uh, you have your book's coming out when in October. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. But, so we can have a whole conversation about that. But yeah. We, well, we will. But I, do you want to do you want to talk briefly about it? I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about what autoflowers are? I know most of the people on this podcast are probably pretty familiar, but have you learned anything inter really interesting about their history or something that you know might surprise listeners that we didn't know about autoflowers? Well, I, I think the most surprising there are two surprising things. <laughs> the most surprising thing is that autoflowers are now as strong and 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 can produce almost as well. Uh, as, as, as standardized uh, or the regular kinds of cannabis. The, the second thing is I was dumbfounded how many people do not know what autoflowering cannabis is. They've never heard of it. And once they, and even professional growers, and once they hear about it, they go, wow, the possibilities are endless. So, so for those who don't know, uh, autoflowering cannabis does not require a photo period like uh, indica and sativa cannabis plants do. And that means you can grow it any time of the year where the temperature is okay. And that means you can grow it indoors or outdoors any time of the year. But better than that, they go from seed to harvest in seven to nine weeks. Wow. Because they don't have the breeding that we have put into our, our sativas and our indicas. Uh, we put Af Afghan hash plants. Uh, they are the basis of all the plants we grow, except for these autoflowers. And, and, and they, they take a long time to mature. These autoflowers, seven to nine weeks harvest, seed to harvest. And they are spectacular. And the breeding that's going on with them is spectacular. You can breed them yourself. It's quite easy to breed two existing autoflower plants, but if you wanted to breed an autoflower plant with 
you know, a regular cannabis plant, you can do that as well. It takes a, a bit longer and obviously takes many more generations, but it's, it's just an exciting new adjunct uh, to our hobby, but to the gardening world, I think it's going to be a brand new hobby. The next tomato. <laughs> so if anybody wants to just quickly hop over to Amazon and pre-order the book, uh, you can do that. It's called uh, DIY Auto Flowering Cannabis, A New Way to Grow. And I like to say there's a new bud in town, and this is it. It's going to be spectacular. And and, and if you're a grower currently and, and are turning your nose up to uh, – uh, you know, these things, go on the internet, look up some of these seed companies, get some of these new seeds and just try them out. I guarantee you'll be flipping out. No question about it. Now, one question I had, I, I had heard that, I don't know if in your research, you found the origin story of what, what cannabis ruderalis essentially is, is autoflowers, as I understand it. And that they were discovered in Siberia on the side of a road or something. Is that true? What, what have you found? Yeah, the, the story goes that uh, there was a scientist in the Volga River area, uh, and he stumbled upon this in his travels. Uh, and, and it was about 1900, 1903 or so. And, you know, it didn't have any THC in it, and, and uh, you know, sort of a scrubby-looking little plant. So he didn't really think too much about it. I mean, he did, he did realize it was a, a, photo, a photo period list plant, uh, but he didn't think too much about it and didn't really do much about it. Uh, and, and people fooled around with him a little bit in the 70s, but they just, they just weren't kicking around. And, and then people began to discover him in other places. Um, so, so in addition to uh, the Volga River area, which is not Siberia. I think they found it in Siberia. Uh, people have found them in Canada. I've heard stories that people have found them along the railroad tracks in Alaska, although I've been unable to track that one down. Um, uh, but they're a scrubby little plant. Uh, they're about a foot, foot and a half tall, um, sometimes a little bigger if you give them a little bit of food. But uh, they're just a funny-looking little cannabis plant that uh, that, that grows so quickly and doesn't have a photo period. And the reason it doesn't have a photo period is because it, 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 you know, it's evolution. It's a great example of evolution. It, it, these escaped from plantations where people were growing hemp for probably rope and sailcloth and things like that. Uh, and they realized, uh-oh, I better flower right now or I'm not going to survive. And they did. So there you go. Auto flowering cannabis, the next tomato. And I want to do a quick plug for a forum called autoflower.net. So if you want to go and read a little bit about it, that's a good one. Uh, Jeff's posted on there. I've posted on there. I don't check it as frequently as I probably could, but um, there's a lot of great guys on there that are more familiar with autoflowers than anyone. Oh, my goodness gracious. And if, and if you want to, you know, soup to nuts, if you want to uh, learn about where to buy seeds, they cover all the seed companies. There's little, little you know, little displays off of various different forums. <laughs> I like to tell a story. You know it, Ted, that, uh, you know, when I, I came up with the idea to write the book, um, and again, it's not a book for growers. It's a book for, you know, parents who want to, you know, or gardeners who might want to get into a new kind of plant. Um uh, boy, I really have, uh, I, I, I have consumed the Kool-Aid that the stigma is gone. Haven't I, <laughs> you know, Oh yeah. Your father and mother will be growing plants. You know, yours might be, but I don't know. You know, uh, <laughs> you know it's just one of these, it's just a phenomenal thing. I think people are just going to fall in love with it. Everything you like about growing a regular plant, you can do with this one. Colors, shapes, sizes, 
breeding, not breeding, feminizing, you know, male, female, the whole bit. It's just fabulous. And all in seven to nine weeks. Can you imagine uh, what the difference is in a breeding program if it's seven to nine weeks versus seven to nine months? Wow. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to grow autoflowers yet, but I think this year I might get the opportunity to get to experiment with them a little bit. So I'm excited for that. And I'm excited to read your book. Uh, we'll definitely come back on and have a podcast just on autoflowers here, uh, you know, maybe closer to October. That'd be great. Yeah, it's going to be. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to the book because, again, you know, it's, I write these books for myself. I don't write them for anybody else. And um, this one I did write for somebody else. I wrote it, you know, for people who don't grow. But, yeah, I'm always amazed on these books. I just learned that uh, Teaming with Microbes and Teaming with Fungi are both being translated into German. Um, I talked to a woman the other day about uh, Teaming with Microbes in Chinese. Wow, wouldn't that be something? Uh Whee! It's unbelievable, and I, and you know I got to thank people like you and your listeners, you know who who who've just adopted the book as as sort of a a, a good a good read, and, and and I thank you guys for that because <laughs> again write these books for myself, but only one people, person buying a book, you know you, <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, so so I thank everybody for for that. They've really been more than kind and. Buying the book and telling friends about it, or all the books and telling friends about it. Well, I didn't tell you. I was in uh, the San Juans this past week on, weekend for a friend's birthday, and we walked into the bookstore, and of course, I went straight to the gardening section, and Teaming with Fungi was right there in the front best location on the bookshelf, and there was also Jesse Bloom's book and Steve Solomon's book, a lot of the people that I've interviewed on this podcast. I was like, wow, I know a lot of the really cool people in the gardening world. I'm very fortunate. Isn't that fun? Yeah. Isn't that fun? Yeah, it is fun. So you did Steve Solomon. I, you know, Steve, Steve, of course, lives in New Zealand. Yes. Um, and I, I, you know, I used to be on his listserv for a little while. And I just don't have any time anymore because, because he was, you know, he, initially he thought his system of growing, which is, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, minerals uh, versus microbes. He did, you know, he, he was not a, a big fan of the microbe system. Um, and, and I think he's come along quite a bit. Uh, uh I, you know, I think some of the things Dr. Lane said he didn't agree with, and so uh, I think he, I think he sort of w went the other way, and I think he's back again. But uh, uh, you know, the the two systems work quite well. Obviously, uh, you know, it's the microbes that put the charge on the minerals, so they can get in there. So uh, you got to have them both. Yeah, I think they're both a little right and a little wrong too. So we try and co use a combination of both by remineralizing the soil and then having good biological activity and diversity and promoting the sorts of things that you talk about in teaming with microbes. Yeah. Oh, hey, 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 that reminds me of something I want to, I want to go back and correct because I think, I think this was the show where I created the, uh, the controversy. I, you know, we talked about whether cannabis should be grown in fungally dominated soil or bacterially dominated soil. Remember that conversation? Uh, and I think I, I, what I said was, you know, it's an annual plant. It's not a perennial plant, and it likes bacterially dominated soil. And I, I, I believe, again, I don't want to put any words in her mouth, but I, I believe Dr. Lane said, mm, nah, you know, her research indicates that it really likes a little bit, it likes fungally dominated soil. Is that what basically the, is that what she said? Or, or uh, I don't, again, I don't want to put words in her mouth. And I said, I said, I think the right answer, is, you know, as I went back and sort of looked and looked and thought about it in light of the auto flowering book, and I want to I sort of change my answer a little bit if I can. 
It is an annual. <laughs> I still believe that it likes bacterial soil. Um, but I think you got to take a look at which variety you're growing, first of all. So if you're growing an autoflower plant, geez, these are in the ground for only nine weeks. Those, those love bacterially dominated soil. There's no question. They are clearly, in my mind, bacterially dominated. All the testing I've done, you know, they thrive with the bacterial soil. But if you make it, if you make, if you make the soil too rich, they don't do very well. So, um, that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is when, when we talk about bacterial soil, we're not talking about soil that is, or I'm not talking about soil that's void of fungi. So bacterially dominated simply means that you have more bacteria than fungi, but you have fungi. Um, and, and obviously you need to have fungi to break down stuff. Uh, you, you know, you've got to have, you've got to have the fungi in your soil, even if it's a, you know, it's supposed to be heavily bacterially dominated. You still have to have some fungi, I believe, in the soil in order to make it soil. Um, so if, if you're growing a, let's go back to my original thought, thought there. If you're growing an Afghani, uh, you know, that's a nine-month-long plant, it, you know, it necessarily in nature is going to have soils that where, where fungi have, have come in, uh, you know, and, and, and established themselves. And so you're going to want to have more fungi for the plants that take longer to grow. And we know now pretty well how long a seed's going to take. You know, Blue Dream takes X amount and, you know, uh, uh, whatever, you know, uh, uh, you know, Blueberry takes Y amount. And so, and so I think we've got to be thinking of it in terms of that way. So, so I just wanted to clarify that a little bit. I still think they, they like bacterially dominated soil, uh, but you've got to have fungal in it. Uh, and if I'm if I'm correct in putting words in her mouth, I believe that Dr. Elaine uh, thinks that you need to have a little bit more fungal uh, than bacteria. So uh, I'll, I'll sort of leave it at that. I, I never want to argue with Dr. Elaine. I, I, I she is she's been so important to my life uh, that I, I I hate to argue with her until I have empirical evidence and we sit down and have a discussion. So uh, there I go. <laughs> Well, I, I have a few thoughts on the subject that I'd love to get your opinion oh, on too. So, great, yeah. In my opinion, when we talk about fungally dominant or bacterial dominant, uh, we're really talking about the plant succession table, which I think, or chart, which people get, I think, overly caught up in. So, yes, if we were trying to grow cannabis or lettuce or some, you know, annual crop at the very edge of an old oak forest, we may have issues with that because that soil has been established. And that's why when we till the soil, we're getting that reset that you talk about and and getting some more bacteria in there. So, but then, uh, all soils are probably, you know, like you said, all soils need fungal activity. That's the subway system for our bacteria to move around. It creates soil structure. It prevents erosion. All of the things that you talk about in, in teaming with microbes and, and teaming with fungi. So right, right. Uh, when I make a compost tea, because this is where I, I, I find it, people email me like, I'm growing cannabis. I need a bacterial tea. This is, you know, I don't want fungus, so I'm doing it this way. Or I want a fungally dominant tea, so I need to add you know, baby oats and then, and then get this fungally dominated tea. And I think people get so caught up in that, that they forget that compost tea is really about microbial diversity and nutrient cycling. Cause realistically that, that cannabis plant or that tomato or, or, or lettuce is really controlling the rhizosphere, right. what organisms are going to be successful. So we're just trying to put out as many as we can 
and really let the plant be in charge of that process. Would you agree with that? Or Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I always, you know, in my talks, I always start out with the concept that, yeah, this is how the system works, but the plant is in control, not you. It's the plant that makes the decision. And so even if you, even if you put down a bacterially dominated tea, if the plant needs fungal, fungal, uh, you know, materials or needs to attract more, it'll change the estradiate and do what it needs to do to get the fungal that it needs. Uh, you're right. We tend to get, we tend to get hung up on the theoretical, so to speak. I mean, in order to explain the system, we talk about, you know, fungal bacteria, the, the, the succession chart. What I do now in my talks is I, is I, as I say, basically, if it's in the, if it's in the ground for more than a year, it really needs much more fungal than, than bacteria. And if it's in the ground for less than a year, it doesn't. That's sort of how I leave it. But the plant, you're right, is in control and is going to make the decision if it can live long enough. And generally it can. You know, if you're in a situation where you've taken a plant up to space and you're growing it in a baby diaper, <laughs> you know, uh, and you've given it fungal and it needs bacteria, it's not going to live. But uh, if it's in regular soil, it'll, it'll figure out if it can live long enough how to get the, the goodies that it needs from those, uh, those bacteria. It's just simple as that. The plant is in control. We don't give them enough credit. Uh, and, I, and I agree with you 100%. I would also say that when we talk about bacteria and fungi, uh, there's so many different species, you know, tens of thousands of species of bacteria in the soil. We don't know which one is the mechanism of action in a lot of cases. So we can't just say, I, I would argue we can't just say bacteria, adding bacteria is going to be beneficial without knowing what species of bacteria or strain of bacteria we're, we're adding. So again, with compost tea, it's the shotgun approach, but I, I don't want to get too caught up because it's very easy to, to add bacteria. Bacteria is everywhere. It's it's easy to make more bacteria, but we want to make sure they're beneficial bacteria and that they're working in uh, you know a, a functioning nutrient cycling system. Sure. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and of course, then I always I always add, but if nothing else, and you put a bacterial down, and you really wanted a fungal, the bacteria might die. They become food. They become food. And so, you know, something else in the soil food web will use it to make whatever the plant ultimately is going to say it needs. Um, yeah, it's such a beautiful system, isn't it? Yeah. So that <laughs> that reminds me of something. So it, it's pretty crazy. I I see you being quoted now as like a uh, authority on these subjects. So people will say in forums, you know, I read in Teaming with Microbes this, and then they'll read, right? Someone else will say, well, in Teaming with Fungi, Jeff says this. And, and in this particular yeah. case, the topic was uh, soil pH. Does, it, does pH matter? Because in this case, the gentleman had water that was, I think, like 8.3 or 8.4, and people were saying, you don't need to worry about that. The plants, the microbes in the soil are going to buffer the pH. Now, I have my own thoughts. I personally believe that pH... Uh, it's still a factor. I think we've gotten away yeah. with a lot because the microbes do offer some buffering capacity. So, you know, 75, 80% of the time, and I'm making those numbers up, we can, we can check our pH pen and not have issues. But if I saw water that was, you know, seven, six, seven, five or higher, I would want to be adding an acid and, you know, like citric Me acid to, to lower the pH. So go, go ahead. Tell me your thoughts on, on pH. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, I think what people are forgetting is what I say is that the, the, the only place where pH counts is around the rhizosphere. And now that's 
that's really probably too much of a generalized statement because the pH doesn't just affect the bacteria and the fungi. You know, other organisms are impacted by pH as well. Uh, but 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 we tend to think of it just in terms of how it, how it impacts the ability of a plant to be able to take up certain nutrients, uh, which is bacteria and fungi related, I think ultimately. But um, uh, so so the area where pH counts is where the plant you know it doesn't count on the surface. If there are no roots on the surface, who cares what the pH is? Uh, and so that, I think, you know, that's, so I get into that. But if if someone gave me a glass of acid and said, here, water your plants with it, uh, you said the plants are going to take care of themselves. I'd say, whoa, 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 you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, of course, you've got to be cognizant of, of what's, what's going on. But in general, as you say, 70, 80% of the time, you don't got to worry about the pH. The plant's going to take care of it for itself. Uh, if you're, if you've got an extreme situation, yeah, you've got to pay some attention. Do I, do I test for pH all the time? Nah, I don't. Um, but if I see something going on with my plant, that's one of the first things I think about is pH. And, and it's one of the easiest things to adjust. So, so that's where, sort of where I come from. Yeah, the, the plant and the natural system should take care of your pH for you. But, but, but in, your, in the example you gave, you know, you got somebody adding a, you know, an outside substance with a pH of 10. Oh, oh my God, you know, whatever that's not a natural system. Yeah. When I, when we talk about commercial cultivation, you know, where you're doing this for a living, I, I like to see a, a good soil test initially. Um, in this case, we usually use the Malik three and the saturated paste just to get a ballpark figure. I don't take these numbers as, uh, you know, as scripture. You got to be able to, t- to track trends. And so you got to have a number, any number <laughs> is helpful, but you've got some specific ones and that's, and as long as you use the same ones each time, that's great. Yeah, and I think testing your water too is really important, especially for people on the wells, as that water may fluctuate throughout the year. Uh, it, it can make a difference, and, and we've seen it with plants. So, yep, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Um, but 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 here again, if you were dealing with a normal crop, you know, you would let it adjust itself. But we're dealing with a commercial crop, and we, we you know, you're 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 selling it. You got to pay attention to it in all aspects of it. Uh, you know, you want to know everything. You want to know the pH. You want to know NPK. You want to know microbiomass. Uh, all of these things are. Uh, have you been fooling around with the bio- microbiometer at all? I haven't. Uh, I haven't quite gotten on board with that product yet. And I've loved. I think we already had this discussion, but we can have it on air for for listeners too. So uh, I approach this the microbe side a little differently than you do. Uh, for me, for example, this this microbiometer that would tell me, you know, microbial biomass in the soil. It doesn't identify species. Um, no. For me, it doesn't change my, my behaviors in terms of how I garden. And that, that's why I haven't quite figured out a use for it in my head because I, I'm already going to be, you know, making compost teas or using a high quality compost or doing things to increase microbial biomass and diversity. You know, getting a test back that says it's low or high doesn't, change my gardening habit particularly but but what are your thoughts well i use it for a couple of reasons first first i use it well let me let me back up a second microbiomass in general you can you can use microbiomass changes in microbiomass to tell you whether inputs are helping or hurting and so that's the first place where i use it people come to me all the time and say hey would you endorse this product i said is it any good you know i mean i gotta grow plants and do it knowing that it's able to increase a biomass 
in the soil in a positive way is a good indicator that it's a pretty good product. And so I use it for that. Uh, and I think you could do that as well. You know, if you make a new kind of tea, you want to see whether it's whether it's effective. Is it adding to the biomass or not? You know, you take a test before and then you take one afterwards, just like you do an NPK. Um, you can also use it to det- to determine what the plant is doing. Uh, so so plants in the springtime uh, produce tremendous amounts of exudate and increase their biomass around their root systems, and you can track it. Uh, which is interesting. You can track the cannabis plant biomass changes. Uh, they change biomass when they start to flower. And so, so it's, a, just, it's another tool. Now, yes, it does not identify species. And, 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 and right now, uh, it, it doesn't distinguish between bacteria and fungi. Uh, although there is now a beta test going on on the next version, which will do that, uh, which will, I think will be very useful and maybe increase your potential use of it if you can do a little bit of bacterial fungi uh, identification, you know, ratio or quantity identification, that would be very, very useful. Um, It's going to be able to do pH as well, which I think is going to be useful. And so it's just another one of these tools. I don't think it's an exclusive tool, but it's just another one of these tools to help you quantify whether what you're doing is actually helping, whether it's hurting. Uh, and, and I find that to be a fascinating thing to do. Not all gardeners need to do it, uh, but, but, but if you want analytics, information is power. This is another little piece of information. So, you know, microbiometer.com, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and people are coming up with new uses for it all the time, um, uh, which is kind of fun. I, I, I don't know if you're aware of it. I, did, did you ever meet James Satilo? Uh, anyway, James, James was the, the guy. Name. Is he the one behind Yeah. The- he was he was the guy that gave the talk that the woman who invented the thing heard and, and decided to go home and, and and put the thing together. And James was a wonderful compost tea brewer, uh, really avant-garde designer teas. Uh, uh, maintained the High Line in New York, the World Trade Center, uh, the Battery Parks. You know a lot of, a lot of the uh, uh, stuff along along the harbor in New York. And unfortunately, he died last week, so we lost a great guy. who was really added a lot to the compost tea world i think so so upset about that but uh, he, he he had some involvement with the microbiometer which is why i, I thought about it but don't want to be a downer uh, we're all on the back nine and it's how we live and you gotta play that game well so be organic folks <laughs> yeah i'm sorry to hear that i i do recognize yeah. his name now you say it from compost tea so that I, yeah, 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 I, yeah i don't yeah. think i ever met him but i'm sure my father knew him um back in the day yeah Yeah, so just to talk a little more about this microbiometer, if I were to apply uh, mycorrhizal fungi or apply E. coli or salmonella, it would show an increase in biomass potentially? Yes, yes, it would, but it would smell bad. Uh, Well, the mycorrhizal... (laughs) It, it, she's she's got some stuff, very exciting stuff about mycorrhizal fungi coming in the test. So again, it's in beta. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, and I had this conversation with, with uh, sort of obliquely with Elaine. You know, I said, well, you know, uh, yeah, if you put E. coli in your soil, it's going to smell bad. I mean, in other words, you gotta you gotta you gotta know something about the soil food web in order to be able to use that tool. Uh, if you pick up soil that smells bad, I don't care what the microbiomass is. It's bad soil. <laughs> you know, there's something wrong with it. Uh, but if you pick up that soil and it smells sweet and measure the microbiomass, that's a different story. 
So, 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 so it doesn't, it doesn't, so just so I'm clear, it doesn't replace NPK or soil food web tests. I think you got to do those as well. Uh, or, or, or look in a microscope instead of a soil food web test, but, but it, but it is a very interesting, effective new tool. So, uh, yeah, that's right. Well, I, another question I had then was, so I went to this soil scientist conference last January, uh, in San Diego and it was very cool. And what some of the speakers were talking about, you know, they were actually identifying the specific bacteria and their levels in soils. But they were talking about how biomass changes uh, throughout the day, even like an hourly yep. basis. So, yep. Yep. Um, are we just looking for a range with a product like that, or because no. it will change? So we're looking at it, it. It will change. It's not that dramatic a change, frankly. But uh, it does change, but it's not that dramatic a change. What we're talking about is, you know, if you look at a soil and it on the scale of one to two thousand, and it has a reading of two hundred and eighty-five on the microbiometer test, which you take out in the field. The, the neat thing about it is you can do it right there in the field right away. Uh, you know, and, and, and then, you know, you know that you need to add something to it. That's not high enough biomass to be able to feed those plants. But if you have one that's 1,700, oh my God, <laughs> you know, you've got a pretty good situation. You can start concentrating on other things than your, than your microbiology. Uh, so that, you know, it's a useful tool in that regard. I, fi I find it incredibly useful. Uh, and I'm having, I'm having, I'm having fun just sort of wandering around and, you know, I go into the forest and I, holy crow, you know, uh, whoa, some of the, some of the things I measure, it's just, but anyway, I'm a nutball, you know, I mean, I would walk around with a microscope if I could, <laughs> you can waste a lot of time, you know, fooling around testing with these things, you know, it's efficient and practical. That's the, that's the bottom line. Right on, right on. I like that. So, uh, one of the other companies that I looked into was Solvita. They, may, they do soil respiration tests, and there's actually a lot of really good research around measuring soil respiration and CO2 uh, coming off of soils to see what sort of aerobic uh, activity you have in soils. But they're just the, the issue I had was they were just really expensive still. Um, great company, but expensive. Expensive. Uh, and there, there's some limitations to the, to the test as well, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I can't, all of these tests, whether, you know, whether they're perfect or not, they all help. They all give you information and information is power. Uh, and you want to know that, you know, I, I think, I think the standardized test for micro, uh, you know, microbiomass is to, is to measure the phospholipids, uh, you know, that come from their cells and it just takes too long, $500 is, you know, ah. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're seeing these new tests coming along. And uh, I think ultimately, let's go back to the, the question of the bacteria. Ultimately, we're going to have machines in our own homes that are going to, or our, <laughs> our cell phone, uh, you know, that's going to enable us to take pictures and be able to, or be able to determine what, what we have. Uh, and boy, would that be an exciting time. Uh, so, for example, I always talk about this this article I read last year uh, in Science, I think it was in Science News, where they go around, they test soils all around the world, and there are 511 bacterial taxa, you know, bacterial families that pop up everywhere they test soils. You know, well, what if you go to the KISS farm and you test the soil and it's only got, it's only got 428, it's missing those other ones, you know. Which ones is, is missing? Can, and if you put them in, does it make it? Does it make the soil better? And you know, well, you got to be able to identify these bacteria. And da, 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 da. so when we get there, we're getting closer and closer and closer. We're all ultimately, I believe, going to be growing a little flower cannabis. 
we're all going to have a uh, you know one of these 3D printers in our houses, <laughs> you know, so that when you want a new piece for the Kiss machine, you just go to Kiss's web website, you know, and you and, and you download the template to make the new pipe, and poof, you make it, you know. Uh, and then I forgot what the third thing was, which was the point I was trying to make. But uh, uh, you know, we're all going to have bacterial bacterial and fungal identification uh, abilities, and we're going to be able to say, oh. Oh, this soil's missing uh, 16 different kinds of bacteria that it needs, or this soil's got powdery mildew in it. Wow, can you imagine? Uh, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, soil science is so fascinating to me. But I was, uh, you know, getting back to what you talked about with cannabis growing and all of that being sort of on the cutting edge. Some of the stuff that they were sharing at the conference, uh, very specific, but it did seem like things that was kind of like, oh yeah, duh, we already, we already kind of knew that, right? But then they're able to prove it with you know, trials and, and these, these, the methodology that they're setting up with these studies. So it, it was definitely interesting. Oh yeah. I mean, let's face it. Uh, as we get more legalization opportunities to study, you know, whew, the things we're going to be able to, 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 to pick out, you know, when you study a plant in like cannabis, where there is a demand and a need and, we, and different kinds of uses and all the different different chemical ingredients that we're all trying to find, holy crow, we're going to have some unbelievable research opportunities. Uh, you know, again, once in a lifetime, uh, and it's it's going to happen because sooner or later our stupid federal government is going to back off. I mean, we're just you know we're just going to make it happen, and once it once that happens and you can do research on this stuff, oh my goodness gracious. Unbelievable. So uh, changing subjects here, anything you want to share looking back at your three books that are already on the, on the market? Um, you mentioned, you know, I know, remember when you first came out with Timid Microbes, you had the pH <laughs> switched in there and you had this in correction. Oh, but, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then, know, that's and just then... a silly error. But was there anything you found that you've been like, you know, looking back, this was really important and I wish I'd talked more about it. I know you did that with mycorrhizal fungus or I've changed my mind on this. Maybe something's changed. Well, you know, uh, I didn't include algae. I think I should have. Um, I mean, algae is part of the soil. Uh, and they're part of the soil food web, and and and, and I think that was a that was a omission. Um, gosh, you know, I have here, every now and then jotted down little things, and I just I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, but I, I guess what I ought to say is, if any listeners come across something that bothers them, let me know right away, uh, and we'll take a look at the stuff. Boy, that pH problem plagues me because every time they do a reprint a reprinting they go back to the first one and it has the mistake in it but uh uh and and then i always worry about is the dutch does the dutch version have the the mistake in ph does the korean version uh you know it's in 11 languages so so that that sort of bothers me but uh you know to, to talk about the books in general i think what i what I have found to be the most satisfying, in, in addition to the fact that people have accepted the books and, and have read them and have, you know, sort of applied and improved on them and all that kind of stuff, is the fact that people are now reading the books as a trilogy. Uh, and I was a little concerned that people were going to think these were three very separate books, but they're not. They really are tied together. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the teaming with fungi is an adjunct with teaming with microbes. Fungi are a microbe. Uh, at the time I wrote the, the, the team with microbes, there wasn't really this uh, wealth of information or, or uh, 
I don't want to say craze, but a need for the mycorrhizal fungi stuff. And it just appeared, you know, 2011, 12. And so that's why that one came. But teaming with nutrients uh, appears because why write teaming with microbes? Teaming with microbes is just how the food gets to the plant. And, and it's so important to know how it gets in the plant and how it operates in the plant. And then you can, you can think about it in terms of where it was in the soil. I mean, it's all packaged. It all fits together. And 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 uh, I I really encourage people when they pick up a gardening book to, to to any kind of gardening book to always try to to fit it into the to their body of knowledge uh, you know because these things are not written in isolation and, and and a lot of people do just pick up a a gardening what's wrong with my plant you know and they read it and they don't think about it in terms of the soil they only think about it in terms of what the leaves are telling you know that kind of stuff no you got to be thinking more holistically uh in or, in order to be really successful at what, at what you do um so there i go <laughs> that's sort of a that's sort of a biodynamic concept isn't it you know it's sort of the whole it's the whole kit and caboodle. you gotta put everything together you can't look at just one part yeah i think it's funny because uh soil really gets a, a the bad rap or nutrients in general when we talk about a plant that's not looking as well uh, people forget about all the other variables like lighting and uh, right. humidity, temperature. Uh, in my case, I find, I'd say, and again, I'm making up these numbers, uh, 75% of the people that have issues, it, it's their watering habits even, because that mm-hmm. affects mm-hmm. the microbial community so dramatically with these living soils that they end up, uh, what looks like a deficiency is actually over or under watering. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny because you, you raise these things up again. In my in my basic talk that I give, you know, about the fifth or sixth last slide, you know, when you give a talk, if you if you put in slides that that generate in theory, if people are understanding what you're saying, a laugh, you know that they're listening and that they understand. And if they don't laugh when they get to that slide, then you you didn't explain it properly, and so you got to go make sure you do so. And one of my laugh slides at the very beginning is a picture, uh, you know, of a guy standing in water, and now I have one of a of a reader board that says. Uh, uh, spring is here. I'm so excited. I wet my plants. So, and I always say to people, we water our plants, not necessarily to give the plant water, although that's obviously important, but to keep the bacteria and the microbes alive. They need water for God's sakes. And, you know, it's amazing. But in the gardening world, not the cannabis world, in the gardening world, every garden writer in America has written at least one column or done one radio or television show where on the subject of the number one mistake people make is they overwater their plants. The number two mistake they make is they underwater their plants. <laughs> and that's, that's a standard. And if you don't write that column once during the year, you know, then, then you haven't, you haven't, you know, complied with the rules of garden writing. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. Uh, watering is so key. So key. Uh, it's just, you'd think it's intuitive, but it's not. Have you played around with moisture meters at all? Uh, we use one from blue mats. It's a digital moisture meter, but I'm always looking for other, you know, other suggestions and what other people are doing to measure, you know, more quantitatively their, their levels in the soil. I, I, I used to, uh, you know, and then I found that wasn't ac- the one I had wasn't accurate and I, I've never, I've never gone back and done it again. Uh, I suppose I could, um, I like to use my finger, <laughs> not very accurate, of course, but, uh, it's something I've always done. Talk about a myth, huh? 
your finger can't tell whether the soil's moist properly or not. Uh, what am I thinking? Ah, crazy. You know, I've heard that too, but then one of the best uh, gardeners, that my botany teacher, he, that's what he does. He uses his finger, and I was like, well, that's not that scientific, but man, you know, you're the best gardener or grower I've ever met, so I'm not going to argue with you on this one. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, my father taught me how to do it, you know. That's yeah, actually, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I go, wait a minute, that's the same finger you pick your nose with? That's not an instrument? What are you talking about? You know, uh, but it is, you know, this is... Uh, but meters are fun, again, because the quantum of information, once you start collecting this information, you know, if you do it properly, oh, my gosh, you get a whole different picture, a whole different picture. Uh, you know, what does withholding water do to this flowering? You know, what is, you know, what does withholding water do to the, uh, to the production of trichomes? All that kind of stuff is fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, and fortunately, in the cannabis world, we tend to share that information. You know, we, we were talking a little earlier. I don't think we want to necessarily get into it, but about this phylos uh, situation, you know, because people, people in the cannabis world were sharing information, you know, and now we've got a problem. Uh, but we do. We tend to share information, uh, and, and I hope we continue to do so. It's very important, very important, uh, particularly with the big guys trying to get into the business. You know, we've got we to gotta support ourselves. It's not, it's not competition that way. It's, you know, that's healthy competition. Uh, we, it's the big guys we've got to worry about. Yeah, I do have actually one other question I wanted to I wanted to bring up and see if you had any information on. Um, so I got a call a few weeks ago about uh, a woman who was vegetable gardening, and she'd done a test on her native soil and then also her raised bed garden, and it came back with 40 ppm of lead in her raised bed garden, you know, where she bought potting soil versus the one where her native soil was zero ppm. So she was, you know obviously upset about that. And I had no idea what 40 PPM of lead meant on this particular test to know if that was an issue or not. So I called the WSDA and Washington state department of agriculture. And I said, Hey, what kind of regulations do you have around heavy metal testing? Because for me as a soil company who, because of the level of fertilizer or nutrients we're putting into our soils, I had to register our soil as a fertilizer, which requires heavy metal testing to make sure it's safe. Now, if I had registered as a potting soil or a soil amendment, uh, what I learned from the WSDA is there really isn't any requirement there. So I could have high levels of cadmium or lead or arsenic, and uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't know or really not. I won't say they won't care, but there's no legislative uh, policy around this. So. Oh, it's even worse. It's worse. It's worse than that. If if you wanted to have radioactivity in your uh, material, it's not tested for that either. And so, so you 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 know, it's unbelievable what you can get away with putting in potting soil. Yeah. So I called the Oregon Department of Agriculture because they've always been really great. Uh, whenever I've talked to them, and basically what they said is. Uh, they, they had to pass me through to a few people and came back with, well, we don't, if, if you're buying it for off, you know, by the truckload or you're just getting loaded in the back of a pickup, uh, we don't, we don't test it. But if you're putting it into a bag, then we do require heavy metal testing because all these states have different regulations. And in this case, what they said was, and it was, I want to say it was a very specific number. It was like 238 PPM or 243. And I was like, how is this, how did you come up with this number? I know it was somewhere right around that range. And they're like, well, the uh, FDA hired this consulting company way back, you know, 20, 30 years ago to set these levels. 
and we've used them ever since. And so I asked for him to send me research. I haven't seen that research yet, but, uh, you know, that made 40 PPM not look so bad, but if, but then I got thinking about it, you know, if we're growing root crops, if we're growing cannabis, you know, things that are, there's a lot of research to show that they're dynamic accumulators. They uptake heavy metals really, really well. Um, how do we know that what we're getting is safe? And that's something I just wanted to bring up for listeners because the people are sourcing things from so many different places or using really, really high levels of rock dust. And we could be getting these heavy metals in their final crop. And uh, it could be an issue. I just wanted to hear your opinion and what, what you found on the subject. Well, I'm very concerned about it. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the 40 number. I mean, this stuff is cumulative. Uh, and so, so yeah, it may only be 40, you know, but, but, uh, you know, then you go, then you go and, uh, you know, you rub up against your wall or, you know, uh, who knows, but I mean, so it adds up. It's like having a backpack, you know, it's 40, but then you run into something else that's 40 and all of a sudden you have 80 in your backpack, not just 40. So, so that I, I, I'm concerned about any number. Um, I don't think it had anything to do with the fact that one was raised bed and one was in ground. I mean, it was the soil that they brought in. Uh, it had it had the lead in it. Uh, I am very concerned about the fact that 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 we do not test for lots of stuff in the cannabis industry in Alaska, where I live. They don't test for pesticides on the plant. Wait a minute, <laughs> that that ticks me off. You know, I mean, where's our, our where's our clean, green, certified, organic, you know, standard? Uh, but this is something we're putting into our bodies. So so uh, you know, it's not just lead; it's radioactivity. It's all it's arsenic. It's all sorts of stuff. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, we should be testing this stuff. And and if you're growing a, a, a plant like a fern or a cannabis that can create this stuff, you know, one of them it's fine because you're not eating or smoking it. The other one it's not. So so it's upsetting. I'm upset. <laughs> I need to go back and look at the research, but I'm not sure if it accumulates it into its trichomes or if it just goes into its leaf biomass, in which case it's a little less concerning for cannabis. But there always is some leaf material, you know, when you're consuming. Well, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait a minute. We're putting, you know, in, in, in the new modern world, they're putting those leaves into a machine that's turning them into oil. And so the lead's still there in theory. So, so, so whether it's trichome or leaf, if it's in the plant, you're turning it into an oil, uh, you know, that's a potential problem. Let's talk about the research a little bit. There's a terrific podcast uh, that ran recently, uh, uh, and I'm trying to remember whether it was Radiolab or something of that sort, but people can Google it, uh, involving uh, lead standards and lead paint, the little Dutch boy that's on the lead paint uh, and basically, oh, it's a, it's a brand new podcast. I know, I remember what it is. It's a brand new podcast where they're trying to say to people, what are we, passies? We got to do something about this with various subjects. And one of them is lead. Uh, they have a whole podcast about the lead paint industry, the little Dutch boy, and how there's so much lead in lead paint and why it was there and, 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 and why it's still around 30 years later. We haven't done a damn thing about it. And we're not holding national lead company that made the paint and other companies accountable good god you know it's crazy anyway it's fascinating google it and, and, and listeners will be fascinated by it no question i'll have to check that out uh that's that's really interesting especially since i'm getting ready to paint my house so but uh, yeah 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 but again not just not just the lead 
radioactivity is something that that always gets me. In, 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 you have to, in order to put, uh, you know, your radioactivity into a landfill, your nuclear waste, you got to fill out form after form after form in order to put it into your potting soil. Nothing. Bad. Bad. <laughs> what have we done to ourselves? <laughs> so the, the moral is, uh, you know, definitely test. And, uh, you know, you, you, you get information, you get smart. Yeah, kind of a downer to end the podcast on, but know where you source your ingredients. I, I would agree with you. That is very important. Right, in all, in all regards. And, 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 and just so that we can, you know, keep it into the organic. It's not just these chemicals that you got to worry about. So if you're using manure, for example, and it's got tremendous amounts of uh, phosphorus in it, you know, it could be that you're using so much manure that, that your phosphorus levels in your soil, even though the stuff gets locked up, are so high that mycorrhizal fungi will never work in your soil for 100 years. <laughs> uh, you got to test, folks, to know what your numbers are. Uh, so you can figure that out. You end up with a, with a soil that has a, you know, a phosphorus number that's, uh, you know, uh, 250 parts per million. You got a problem. Uh, you know, it should be 50 parts per million or lower, I think. And, and so, so, yeah, testing is so important. It's not just for the chemicals that we know are bad. Uh, it's, it's for the good stuff as well. Yeah, I've seen some recent testing around nitrogen where, you know, it's being overapplied and we're seeing, you know, some nitrogen toxicities actually from, from too high of levels. So it, that's where a test came in really handy to sort of confirm what we thought we were seeing visually. Uh, with the Right, plants. exactly. Exactly. Well, exactly. So, and again, a place like, like Alaska for years and years and years, we had a garden columnist, not me, uh, who was telling people to put down 832.16, 832.16 three times a year on your lawn. Well, holy crap, that's a lot of phosphorus. <laughs> that's a lot of phosphorus. Uh, those lawns have got phosphorus for the rest of time. Uh, so, yeah. They we're not even allowed to apply phosphorus on lawns here in Washington. They've passed laws around that because of uh, issues with it leaching. And well, I think, I think nationally, if people take a look at the, uh, the lawn food, lawn, uh, non-organic uh, lawn foods, you'll see there is a no, no number, zero for the middle number. You're not allowed to put phosphorus. We're, we're 30, 40 years away from peak phosphorus. Uh, and, 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 uh, whew. That's going to be a bad problem. We thought climate change is a bad. <laughs> uh, if we run out of phosphorus, we're dead. Well, you know, Jeff, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I uh, look forward to seeing you soon here at the Cultivation Classic. Though this podcast will probably come up after it's already been, it's after it's already happened. But uh, I'm looking forward to your talk, and I always keep an eye out for when you're coming to my area because it's always great to hear you speak in person. Well, you know, you can hardly shut me up, as you know. Uh, so if any, anybody needs a speaker and they can afford it, contact me. I'll be there. <laughs> Simple as that. And, and this new book, I think uh, your sister is going to love. <laughs> that was Jeff Lowenfels, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. Be sure to leave us a good rating or review on whatever platform you listen on and check out the podcast page and Kiss Organics YouTube channel for more information. And it's not too early to pre-order Jeff's new book on Amazon so you can be one of the first to read it. And stay tuned because I have some great future episodes coming up where I'll be sharing some research from some trials at a commercial cannabis facility and an exciting new collaboration. Thanks for listening.